This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome, Privy Counselors, to your unique Privy Chamber. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Privy Chamber episode for Eleanor of Aquitaine. Mm-hmm. What an amazing woman. Exactly. We finally reviewed her two episodes in. This represents uh, the third of four episodes that Privy Councillors will uh, get to listen to more on the fourth episode later. Um, and I just uh, read on Twitter something very interesting uh, and relevant for us that uh, Alison Weir's just tweeted that the TV network stars has just signed up, uh, is that the word, commissioned? Anyway, mm. her fiction book on Eleanor of Aquitaine for a TV series. Really? Mm. Oh, cool. Um, with, like, an HBO biggie or knockoff internet-based thingy? It, it's kind of a halfway house, so it's like all of the sort of Philippa Gregory books, apart from the first one that was on the um, BBC, they've kind of started just doing them on stars. Mm. Spanish princess and other things like that. So it's sort of slightly mm. generic y kind of historical drama, but equally mm. it's Eleanor on screen. Yeah, 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 true, true, true. Yeah. Oh well I'll check it out. I've I've been listening to the um this week, the Eleanor of Aquitaine biography on the BBC. In our time? Or oh the no, drama? sorry. Um yeah, the drama on Radio Four. Hmm. Um but it just stops. I don't understand. End of the the, yeah. <laughs> well, five times. There's there's five episodes, <laughs> and it uh, takes us from when she was thirteen, about to marry Louis. Louis. Hmm? Louis. Yeah. Uh, and then just uh, stops very abruptly in the middle of. Uh, her life, and it said there's no scheduled future episodes. I might have that very wrong. So, if any Rex fans are listening, and they say no, Ali, there's um seven episodes, mate. Let me know. But I have looked. Hmm. Maybe there have to be more series. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Did it end on a cliffhanger? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think so by the sounds of it. <laughs> Uh, now, anyway, despite the fact that we've done uh, two episodes, there's still plenty more uh, detail for us to discuss about Eleanor, where there's either more detail uh, than discussed in the main episodes, or indeed that some things that we just never discussed at all. So we'll be going through all of that today. As there's so much to talk about, a little bit controversially, I think we're probably not going to do our usual Privy Chamber features today. Oh, I, I the see. The audiobook and all that sort of stuff, just because I think there's going to be so much Eleanor. And I'm so relieved because um, <laughs> I did a Facebook Live thing before and I was looking around to see what I could use in almost preparation, Graham. Yeah. The only thing I had was a um, stapler that I thought I was using mm. as uh, maracas. That could have worked. You remember it for well, next time. Yeah, next time. So all of that stuff uh, when we get to uh, Berengaria of Navarre. Anyway, 
Lots to look forward to, but first it's time for a... Catch up! Come on. (laughs) So we are now finally back on track with the consorts. Apologies for our prolonged break, but after a few months in sort of spring-summer where I was basically not able to do any research at all, since about August-September we've basically been back to normal. Hmm. Uh, did our special episode on Sulla, as well as the Privy Chamber, and then we appeared on uh, the Totalis Rankium podcast to talk more uh, yeah. Sulla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, be sure to check that out if you haven't heard it already. Uh, we're nicely set now, so hopefully the episodes on Berengaria and Isabella should be coming along in a more regular time frame, and then we'll have some more bits and bobs to fill our mini-series break, where I have my study leave to do the next slot. Nice. Uh, when you Is it possible for you to say the word bits and bob without hearing the cbbc theme tune yes oh that's features quite heavily in our life i've we've not really done cbb's how well we've what we've just it's all just streaming stuff so we obviously watch stuff that is on cbb's like hey dougie and yeah other things but we've never actually sat him down and watched telly yeah, what well, just select stuff. Yeah. Um which I don't know whether it's good or bad. On the one thing it's definitely good to be able to just be like, right, watch this thing that you definitely like. On the other hand, maybe good for him just to experience like we did, what is on. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. Or the fact that now there's that option as well. Um it's just to experience no there was just no telly for uh, you were, there was kids telly for an hour a day, specifically four till five. Otherwise, sit quietly. Rubbish. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so um, we'll be hopefully on a slightly more regular schedule uh, once again. Even though we're in lockdown again, it's uh, there's nursery this time, so it's fine. Yeah, and we've got vaccines coming. Wee! Well done, everyone involved in that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, in terms of other things to catch up on, the most recent exciting thing that we did was a lunchtime Zoom session for a history society for my old school oh yeah yeah that was brilliant yeah so we were contacted by a student there so it was a coincidence that it was my old school they didn't know it was just they liked the podcast oh right happened to i oh sorry i take this off um it's on loud sorry um i assumed that um it was a listener first uh who and you must have mentioned brentwood and then she got in touch but it was just complete random complete random yeah never mentioned it um, yeah, so they asked us to do a sort of 20 to 30 minute talk on the best English monarchs, i.e. the first series. Uh, so yeah, I think it was quite a fun talk. We based it around the factors. So Ali described each factor, what we'd expect from it. And then I do some good and bad examples of the monarchs. Mm-hmm. As good. ever, you'd sort of get sat down, enjoy yourself and forget that we're doing a talk <laughs> rather than just us having a chat. Yeah, it was I just find it fascinating chatting to you when you've got your notes in front of you. I mean, generally, anyway, I love chatting to you. But, you know, when I see that you're prepared, I sit down and think, right, strap in. It's going to be fun. Because yeah, you said you were sort of, there was a bit of you which was worried at the start. And then you're like, oh, no, Graham's got notes. Ah, uh, yeah. Was there? It's when, because I'm not sure I was completely aware of what it was we were doing. Yeah. And um, when <laughs> hard as that when, may be to believe, <laughs> when uh, when she started, so the teacher started said, "Okay," and I said, "Okay." She said, "Okay." So when you're ready, just 
off you go. And, and at that moment, I felt like cars falling. I said, oh, God. And uh, then <laughs> you start to say, speak. okay, I didn't, yeah. I've got nothing. I don't know why I'm here. Um, and then you started talking. I thought, oh, thank God. Yeah, of course Graham would have prepared something. What was I thinking? <laughs> of course he would. I, I definitely thought that it was going to be <clears throat> a surprise for you as well. But then there you are, like the parachute. <laughs> Grab me from falling so I can look around and enjoy the view. Uh, I think I'm still. I'm think you're still maybe traumatized from the time that you nearly had to do the um, Islamic radio interview completely on your own when I gave them my wrong phone number. I'd have hung up. Hundred <laughs> percent. I'd have gone. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I'm just hung up. No way would I have attempted it. <laughs> My favourite uh, aliasm from our uh, talk to the school was when you were advising our teenage audience to get the sex with nuns in early in case you die young. <laughs> oh, well, I, yeah, I mean, that should be above any um, school <laughs> entrance hall, shouldn't it? Hmm, <laughs> wise words. Anyway, it seemed to work well. So if you're a teacher at a school or university or whatever and you think your students would enjoy 20 minutes of us doing our nonsense on Zoom, then uh, let us know. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> oh, I mean... Anyway, that's us caught up. Let's get back to Eleanor. Lack of evidence. Now, something we mentioned at the start of her biography episode was that we know a lot less about her than one might imagine. And I ended up cutting um, a certain bit from the recording where I was trying to remember a quote from an historian and mm. I couldn't remember it, so I just cut it out. <laughs> uh, but the historian in question was a chap called Richard Barber and this is what he had to say. To print out all of the records and chronicle entries about Eleanor would take less than 100 pages. That is crackerjack, isn't it? And that doesn't also seem to tally with the fact that we've already had two main episodes on her and now about to have a pretty big one <laughs> again. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what? not what's the deal there, but... What's, what's the, the deal, deal there? there? <laughs> what is the deal there? <laughs> <laughs> what is the deal here? Actually, well, we just had a you sent me, like, five identical messages in a row, but the italics in different places. But when yeah. I was seeing the preview come up it was just the same message with no oh no yeah italics. yeah and i was like what's he doing not it what was the phrase only on the nights that we're doing rex factor yeah. <laughs> god that must be sort of weird incantation coming through yeah. well the thing is ellen is a key figure at the center of events in western europe for about 67 years so even if there's not a lot of detail in the chronicle entries there's an awful lot of events we know about where she has some involvement and so we can talk around and we've got a lot that we can kind of fill in yeah okay okay um and some periods do have a, quite a bit of detail i mean there's barely anything for her childhood not an awful lot when she's queen of england and almost nothing uh, for when she's imprisoned by henry but the bulk of what we do know comes from the last 15 years of her life when she's queen mother so there's an awful mm. lot of detail for that period and it's curious with that, that we're still following the Anglo-Saxon consort pattern, whereby queen consort often not very prominent, but queen mother suddenly one of, if not oh, the yeah. most influential figures. Oh, yeah. Funny little um, Anglo-Saxon hangover. Hmm. Weird. Or with the Norman consorts, a bit of an, an anomaly. Yeah. Yeah, but um, thank goodness she did have that last bit of her life when she could really excel. I 
Aquitaine. Uh, as we said in the main episode, Aquitaine's a very large and powerful duchy, roughly a third uh, the size of modern France, bigger than Normandy and Anjou combined. Oh, Ali's mind has just been blown by something. You said it, the duchy, and it's yes. the left of France. Yes. Pass the duchy to the left. I don't know the song, but that's... Uh, I. Do, it's, uh, isn't that a famous song? <laughs> I can't believe I never put two and two together. I'll Google it later. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google it now. Pass the duchy on the left hand side because Gove is the current Duchy of Lancaster fellow, isn't he? Uh, Pass the duchy is a song produced by Tony Owens from Kingston and the British Jamaican reggae band Musical Youth. Ah, from 1982, the reggae song was a major hit, peaking at number one on the UK singles chart. I'm just so darn up to date. <laughs> um, pass the Duchy lyrics. Uh, pass the Duchy on the left hand side. Please be left. Pass the Duchy upon the left hand side, I say. Pass the Duchy upon the left hand side. It'll go done. Give me the music. Make me jump and prance. It'll go done. Give me the music. Maybe rockin' and the dance. Maybe that's one of her troubadour verses. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's actually where it's from. They just they were going around singing past the Dutch on the left hand side. <laughs> yeah, sorry, so Gove was is the current Duchy of Lancaster person. Apparently he um he's he was asked if he passes it on the left hand side on the train when he goes back up. <laughs> oh. Well, that's uh, that's one for royal songs for next time that we <laughs> Um, in terms of Aquitaine's history, which we didn't really go into much uh, in the backgroundy stuff for, El- for Eleanor, it had been elevated to uh, the status of a kingdom by Charlemagne within his uh, Carolingian Empire. But then after his death, it kind of exists for a while as a separate kingdom. The French kings supposedly retain overlordship of all of these territories like Aquitaine, though in reality they remain largely, if not defiantly, independent. So the exact makeup of Aquitaine changes over time, but it basically comes to incorporate Gascony, Poitou, Angoulême, and La Marche. So it's this huge, huge territory beyond what Aquitaine would be today. Um, yeah, you sent in me in the episode that map, mm. and I think that was the first time I properly looked at it. Um, and when we used to say the left of France, I was sort of imagining the like a much smaller rump of land than clinging to the coast. Yeah, the three quarters of the country nearly, it looked like. Well, no, half. I don't know, a big, big lump. Mm. Well, and when you add that to Normandy, Anjou, Brittany. Yeah, and then ultimately England. And she Mm. had a crack on the other side as well, having the little blue bits of the map. Bit of Toulouse. (laughs) Amazing. Mm. So, in fact, she actually, apart from Toulouse, really does ultimately in her life sort of rule the entirety of france which is more than the kings of france ever managed in that time mm. yeah fantastic isn't it now Aquitaine actually has a history of powerful duchesses coming before eleanor duke william iii's wife was a dealer the daughter of the daughter of rollo of normandy the first sort of duke of normandy uh, who was seen as being the dominant force in their marriage william the fourth angered his wife emma of blois by taking numerous lovers so emma banished the lovers from the country deserted him on two occasions and then finally encouraged him to retire to a monastery leaving her to rule as regent for their infant son 
Nice. Good work. Maybe a blueprint that Eleanor would have uh, hoped yeah. Yeah, uh, Agnes of Burgundy was the third wife of Duke William V. Uh, lost her influence on his death as he got two sons by previous marriages. But that she then marries the Count of Anjou again, like uh, mm. Eleanor does, uh, and gets him to invade on her behalf. Defeats the two stepsons and then she rules as regent for a number of years. Uh, pops off to Germany to get her daughter uh, secured to the Holy Roman Empress, and then divorces the Count of Anjou. Heads back to be powerful figure in Aquitaine again. <laughs> just shedding people as they cease to be useful <laughs> yeah amazing however the most remarkable figure from aquitaine that we did mention in eleanor's episode was her grandfather duke william the ninth mm. uh, he became duke in 1086 at the age of 15 and he had a wonderfully turbulent life often finding himself at odds with the papacy mm-hmm. uh, so in 1095 he was invited by the pope in person to join the First Crusade, uh, but instead took the opportunity to capture the county of Toulouse in 1098, while its count, his wife's uncle, was actually doing his holy duty. Nice. Good move. Uh, He was threatened with excommunication for this, um, and this is what gives Eleanor her claim to Toulouse that we mentioned for a few times, but it doesn't actually stay with Aquitaine for long, because in 1101, William mortgages it back in order to finance a mini-crusade in 1101. God, mortgaging huge parts of the country to go on an expedition like the Crusades. And it did not go very well for William. He fought a series of highly unsuccessful skirmishes, was ambushed various times, and ultimately his entire army was destroyed, so he escaped with just six other surviving companions. Wow. Oh my goodness me. And he goes back to that mortgaged land. (laughs) Think, I mean, it's not even that far, is it? It's the other side of the Mediterranean. Mm. You could walk it if you must. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was entirely spent on travel and accommodation. And <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, we can do invasions now, can't we? With the best of them. <laughs> it's not such a huge part of our economy to be able to do it. They, um... Yes... Interesting. He's effectively there. He's mortgaging territory that he's stolen from somebody else back to the person that he stole it from. Oh, that's all right. So it's not that he's mortgaged Aquitaine. He's mortgaged the Toulouse bit that he stole from somebody else. Oh. Oh, super duper. Hmm. Yeah, free free holiday. Exactly. Mine's a double. Uh, after that, he goes back to his anti-clerical ways. In 1114, he was excommunicated for infringing uh, church's tax privileges. And apparently, when the Bishop of Poitiers was about to pronounce the excommunication, William unsheathed his sword and said that he would kill the bishop with his sword if he went through with it. So mm. the bishop said that he would comply. William let him go, only for the bishop to then do it anyway and present his neck to William. Which what? point William has a little pause, sheathes his sword and said, I don't love you enough to send you to paradise. Gah. Roll credits. <laughs> yeah. uh, unperturbed, William managed to go on to achieve a second excommunication for his bedroom antics, which we did mention uh, in the episode. Although married to Philippa of Toulouse, through whom he got that claim to Toulouse, uh, he abducted the wife of his vassal, the Viscount of Chatellerault, uh, she being the wonderfully named 
Viscountess Dangerous. <laughs> so good. Uh, it seems to have been a willing abduction on her part, and she was installed uh, in the tower of his castle in Poitiers, where apparently Philippa, his wife, was rather shocked to find another woman taking up residence. Oh, in the same place? Well, I guess she was put there, and then the wife comes from wherever she'd been away, and it's like, yeah. oh, there's uh, another woman there. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's heartless. A, uh, a bold papal legate tried to persuade William to return Dangerous to her husband, but was told by William, Curls will grow on your pate before I part with a Viscountess. It reads like a cartoon. <laughs> that sentence started with bold papal bull, <laughs> which sounds like a condition, <laughs> yeah. which was used to save Countess Dangerous. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. Uh, consequently, William is excommunicated for a second time and his wife, Philippa, went off or was sent off to live at uh, the Abbey of Fontevraud. Oh, the, the very same. Very same, indeed. Uh, William, however, is absolutely not giving up on this and according to William of Malmesbury, he had a likeness of Dangerous painted onto his shield because, as William said, it was his will to bear her in battle as she had borne him in bed. Oh, very nice. Um, that's like painting Dangerous, the the 80s rock band, onto his pencil case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and as we discussed in the episode, his son was at odds with him for a while over the treatment of the mother, but uh, they seem to come to an accord whereby his son, Eleanor's father, married a daughter of Dangerous by her original husband, which was blowing your mind a little bit in terms of the I, weirdness. It still is. I can't family dynamic. I need to see that written down. I can't <laughs> I can't process that. Now at some point William does make some kind of amends with the church and from 1120 to 23 he joined forces with the Spanish kingdoms who were fighting the North African Almoravids. Mm -hmm. uh, so Muslim forces that have come up and into Spain from Africa. Oh, yeah. uh, when the Almoravids reached Saragossa or, or Aragon uh, the Muslim ruler there was forced to abandon the city and he actually allies with the Spanish against the Almoravids and William is with the Spanish leading the Aquitanian contingent of the army and he helps to defeat the Almoravids at Cutanda and it's at this point that William is given what we uh, call the Eleanor vase oh uh, yeah marriage yeah, yeah. gift so it's a pear-shaped rock crystal vessel uh, which is said to be one of the only items owned by Eleanor, known to survive. And you can see it at the Louvre. Mm, I'd love to see that. Um, may not be the absolute only one. There's also a Psalter uh, that was probably owned by Eleanor, from which we get our episode image of her. Um, but it's the only proper, you know, sort of object of that type. It's about 37 centimetres high, mounted on a circular base of silver and gold with floral design and encrusted with jewels. And it's already an incredibly old item when it's given to William because it's probably made in Persia during the Sasanian period, which is kind of the 3rd to 7th century. God, that's properly finding treasure back in the day, isn't it? Yeah, so it's that's somewhere between 800 and 400 years old when William gets it. Mm. Amazing. May have been a baptismal gift from him to Eleanor and she then gives it to Louis VII as a wedding gift. And historians have been able to chart where it comes from because Abbot Suger makes an inscription on it when he is given to uh, given it by Louis in penance for the death of townsfolk in Vitry. 
and this is the uh, this is the inscription. This vase Ainur as bride gave to King Louis, Mitadolus to her grandfather, the king to me, and Suger to the saints. So the reference to Mitadolus confused historians for a long time because they couldn't find any contemporary ruler or nobleman with that name. But it's actually a Latinization of Imad al-Dawla, which is the title for the last Muslim king of Saragossa, who's a chap called Abd al-Malik ibn Hud. Ah, okay. So we've got a definite lineage of the thing carved onto it. Yeah. Nice. Now, perhaps the most notable aspect of Duke William the Ninth's remarkable life is the fact that he is the first known troubadour. So that's a lyric poet employing sort of romance vernacular language on themes of courtly love. It might not have been the first one that there ever was, but he's the earliest one for whom lyrics survive in the form of uh, 11 songs. Uh, he wrote about love, women, sex, his own sexual and literary prowess, something of a sort of 12th century rapper. I suppose. Pass the uh, duchy to the left. Pass the duchy to the left, indeed. Uh, some historians see this as a transformation of how women are viewed, where they have power to determine men's fates by accepting or rejecting their advantage, uh, their advances. Could be seen as a protest against the church's repressed view of sexuality, whereas William is celebrating uh, the naturalness of desire and making this an honourable thing. And indeed, he's clearly not entirely... Uh, pro-church in all of his doings as we've seen uh, on the other hand not necessarily a great statement of feminism women are placed on a pedestal for, pedestal for their beauty but not necessarily respected as people but either way under william aquitaine becomes an artistic center and helps usher in the age of chivalry and courtly love that was quite well um put in this radio four series about Eleanor, mm. where that she was facing difficulty mixing in Louis's court because she wore too much makeup, which was like the Aquitaine way, and they made her uh, <laughs> northern, and <laughs> all of the Aquitaine people northern for some reason, uh, and Louis uh, English and RP, yeah, to represent the uh, I don't know represent the tradition and aristocracy, and Eleanor was like this ray of light that was going to shake it all up. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so those differences were stark in that. Is that fair, do you reckon? We will come to that in just a moment, no. actually. I'll just finish off with uh, Duke William the Ninth. He dies in 1127, okay. and his Vida, his life story, written in the 13th century, describes him thus. The Count of Poitiers was one of the most courtly men in the world and one of the greatest deceivers of women. He was a fine knight at arms, liberal in his womanizing and a fine composer and singer of songs. He travelled much through the world, seducing women. So he's, he's um, Peter Stringfellow. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Peter Stringfellow on tour. Mm. Well, when he says through the world, it was probably... He went on a crusade, so... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did see the world, and apparently yeah. many of its women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Where does the where does that James Bond line and uh, when does it go too far? It's tricky. <laughs> yeah. uh, Eleanor's father, William the Tenth, was a rather more placid figure uh, than William the Ninth, who was more known for his love of food than women. Mm. Uh, interestingly, though, he joined forces with uh, Geoffrey of Anjou to help conduct punitive raids into Normandy. That was part of Geoffrey's campaign on behalf of the Empress Matilda in the fight against King Stephen. And oh, it's, yeah. it's possible 
that they might have discussed the possibility of a marriage alliance between Aquitaine and Anjou at this point. Oh, right. Because Geoffrey's got young sons. Mm. William's got young daughters. It kind of makes sense. Would they have met young then? Was that, would that have been when they met? So Henry and Eleanor wouldn't have met, but it's, not, it's entirely possible that the idea of them marrying was mooted at this early point. So completely unbeknownst to them, they ultimately come to this arrangement anyway, but perhaps in childhood. Mm. It was written in the stars. Mm. All right, that's nice. Mm. Queen of France. Anyway, back to Eleanor again. Uh, it's incredible to think that she was the Queen of France. She spent 15 years as Queen, yet it's something that's very easy to forget, given all of the high drama that comes afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long period of time. Much like her imprisonment 15 years yeah. as well. And mm. it, you just sort of... And then she's in prison, and then this happens. 15 years gets compressed. Mm. It's also perhaps easily forgettable because she didn't have a terribly good time as queen. She was only 13 years old at the start and struggled uh, to get much influence at court. And apparently she didn't get on very well with Louis' advisers. Uh, John of Salisbury claimed that she had a particular enmity for Thierry Galleran, who was a eunuch whom the queen had always hated and mocked. Weird. Hmm. However, she does have some claim to fame of being the first Queen of France to possess a seal in her husband's lifetime, which was used for business beyond her personal affairs, though this probably reflects her status of Duchess of Aquitaine rather than her being the Queen of France. Oh, right. Yeah. Now, what, what you, what you mean asking a seal? About... Like, literally, uh, just uh, something you'd put in wax? Yeah. Right. Okay. And everyone recognises it as proper, then. Mm. How easy is that to fake? Um, it's probably not easy at the time. Okay. And also probably incredibly punishable by death. Yeah, I would think. <laughs> now, you were saying about uh, Paris and Eleanor and the culture shock and all that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. So, it's to say that a lot of people have speculated that she would have found Paris a dull and very disappointing home after Aquitaine and particularly Poitiers, which sounds surprising, obviously, given that, you know, it's Paris... Mm. Uh, but mm. it's not really until the time of Philip Augustus, who's the later son of Louis VII, that Paris really became uh, this great city of Europe. So uh, Anna Yaroslavna, who was the second queen of Henri I, arrived in Paris in 1051 from Kiev and wrote to her father, What sort of barbaric country have you sent me to? The dwellings here are dark, the churches are misshapen, and the customs appalling. <laughs> I do feel like it would be increasingly rubbish the further north you went mm. uh, if if you're in uh the south of france or in the palestine at the time it would have been a much nicer place to be in any <laughs> culture shot like that would be rubbish it does you basically put on... sound sound like you reacting to being a saxon yeah exactly yeah 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 and you can't even do anything about it like okay well when we get to the hotel we'll warm up <laughs> it's just constantly rubbish <laughs> however Paris is in a better state uh, by Eleanor's time than 1051 and is becoming a more cultured city uh, the most notable person who was probably still there when she arrived was uh, a man called Abelard who is a sort of celebrity theologian large oh yeah Abelard yeah, yeah, yeah large crowds would flock to hear him speak he's probably most famous for his affair with a woman called Eloise so Abelard oh. and Eloise 
Was that a known? Oh, was that a play? Or a th- um, possibly all books and things have been written about yeah. them. Some of their letters to each other survive, so that's why they kind of are this sort of famous uh, medieval couple. And obviously, forbidden love, etc., etc. Maybe it's a painting. Hmm. Anyway, so you know, she was of religious character. Maybe she went to attend uh, attend his lectures. The stuff hmm. about the painting and being overly um in terms of makeup and being overly you know florid and dressed and all that sort of stuff maybe doesn't necessarily tally with what we know about eleanor that's not something that is written about her again later so it might be another one of those in hindsight things where Mm. people know that it didn't go well in france and so they insert generic woman being a woman accusations at eleanor Mm. to make Mm. it sound frivolous and feminine but i mean is it possible to know what the styles were at the time between two places i think yeah certainly yeah i think certainly the south would have been a more sort of colorful and a bit more cultured and exotic but paris maybe isn't quite such a you know dead-end town as Mm. is sometimes portrayed anyway first real involvement in national affairs in france were the champagne wars which uh, aren't quite as fun as they sound. (laughs) Uh, On the way home from Toulouse, Eleanor's sister Petronilla fell in love with the Count of Vermandois, who then abandoned his wife and married her instead. Who was that, sorry? Who who married... Who did that fellow marry? Uh, Eleanor's sister, Petronilla. Petronilla. Mm. Yes, that was covered in that thing. Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. This is almost like research. (laughs) It's almost like they did their research. <laughs> uh, now, unfortunately, the Count's wife was the sister of the Count of Champagne, who's a chap called Theobald of Blois, who's the elder brother of King Stephen. Mm, yeah. Uh, he'd already clashed with Louis several times in recent years, and he now appealed to the Pope, uh, who then excommunicates Petronilla and the Count for their uh, marriage, which he decides isn't valid. And Eleanor is seen as being a driving force in Louis prosecuting the war against Champagne, uh, with some speculating that maybe she an opportunity to increase her own influence at court, because if her sister gets a prestigious marriage, suddenly she's got some allies mm. and actual, mm. you know, people to talk to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, Unfortunately for Louis, as uh, is usually the case, the war was a complete disaster and he's forced to come to terms and uh, make peace. And it was at this point that Eleanor had her clash with Bernard of Clairvaux. Right. So she urged him to use his influence with the Pope to have her sister's excommunication lifted. Now, uh, Bernard was a mighty figure for Eleanor to take on. He enjoyed remarkable influence in France, and he's reduced various powerful figures to basically naughty schoolchildren. So uh, Abbot Suger, who was the uh, the king's greatest counsellor, was forced to lay aside all trappings of power and adopt a simple woolen habit, living in a single small room after being rebuked by Bernard for his worldliness. He set that punishment? Hmm. And he can set punishments like that. Mm. The aforementioned Abelard was denounced by uh, Bernard for heresy in 1140, leading to his excommunication, and he had to seek refuge with uh, Theobald in Champagne. Eleanor's own father, William X, supported a rival pope during the schism until Bernard's reprimand literally forced him to his knees. Goodness me, what is wrong with this man? 
And even uh, the king himself, Louis, Eleanor's husband, was rebuked uh, after the Champagne Wars or during them, uh, with Bernard saying, I am beginning to regret having stupidly favoured your youth more than I should have done, and I am determined that in future, to the best of my limited ability, I will expose the whole truth about you. I speak harshly because I fear harsher things for you. Oh, dear. So, and Eleanor is taking this fellow on age... 15, age, when she be now? 11, 40, she's maybe... Maybe about 20 now. Mm-hmm. And how did they fall out? Uh, well, Eleanor says, Oi, you need to do more to get my sister's mm. excommunication lift. And uh, he doesn't like that and uh, has a bit of a go at her back to the extent that he actually apparently reduces her to tears. Oh, shame. Hmm. Uh, though she says this is because actually she's just really stressed about not having a child. So it's then that he he says, tell you what, you stop sticking your nose in and I'll pray for you to have a child. And she agrees and, to that. And she did. Okay. And does. Yeah. yeah, good. This is actually Bernard's second appearance in this series and second consecutive one if we get rid of the Sulla special episode because he also knew Matilda of Boulogne, Stephen's wife. Um, and he seems to have been a much cuddlier figure for Matilda because uh, she invoked his name during a difficult labour and then when she was safely delivered of a child attributed its success to him. So he later wrote to her, Preserve my son for me to whom you just gave birth since I also, if it does not displease the king, lay claim to a portion in him. That would displease the king, wouldn't it? I think he's just saying, pretending that he's some kind of, uh, not a father, but that he did a bit of a miracle by being invoked and the safe birth. Right. But still in uh, slightly uh, cheeky language. Yeah. The, um, the, who was that child that was given birth in? Was it was given birth to? Um, it was a son who died later, oh. I think. No. Um, anyway, so he obviously seemed to be a bit of a, a cheerier, cheekier chappy in his youth, but by the time Eleanor meets him, he's a bit of a, bit of a Dunstan. Yeah, a bit of a yes, a bit of a Dunstan, exactly. The Second Crusade. Again, another amazing thing about Eleanor: she wasn't just Queen of France; she went on the Crusade. Hmm. Super. Not everyone was happy about this idea, though. Uh, William of Newburgh complained that it undermined the holy nature of the Crusade because she's a woman. Because she's a woman. The king, whose love for his young wife was a jealous one, thought he should not leave her behind and decided to take her to war. Many other nobles did likewise and brought their wives along. And as the wives could not do without their serving women, a whole host of women found their way into that Christian camp where chastity should have reigned. And this was an occasion for sin in our army. That's not why they lost, though. Hmm. It's why they try and pretend that that's why they lost them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, these so, women. Yeah. You did a massive tactical blunder and you're quickly looking around for someone in a skirt to say, Sir! <laughs> Perhaps the mere fact of her being there would have been a bit controversial, but her conduct in Antioch is what tipped things over into notoriety thanks to rumours of an affair with her uncle Raymond. Oh, yeah. Now, Raymond's status within Aquitaine has been the matter of some debate, as there doesn't seem to have been any question of him succeeding his brother uh, as Duke, so either he must have given up his claim to Aquitaine by taking on this new role uh, as Prince of Antioch, or alternatively, maybe he was an illegitimate son 
uh, of William oh, the Ninth, yeah. perhaps product of the affair with Viscountess Dangerous. <laughs> Uh, and so he so, doesn't have a claim to Aquitaine, but he's got a new chance in Antioch. He's a dangerous king of Antioch. Hey. Uh, he's probably about five to ten years older than Eleanor, so she might have known him as a child. So he might have been, for her, a sort of glamorous older brother, mm. more than an uncle. Yeah. Uh, and thus she might have been drawn to him based on that earlier connection, but for outsiders, maybe it looks a bit closer than it should do, but in reality for Eleanor it's a purely familial thing. I mean, that's just a- any excuse, isn't it? That's just presumably someone spending time with their uncle. Oh, I'm bored. I'm going to say they're <laughs> having an affair. Like that, just being with your uncle. What's wrong with that? Well, the, the way that they were so chatty and so familiar with each other. It's also, I suppose, if they spoke in Occitan, uh, their sort mm. of southern language, or even just their southern accents, maybe some of the onlookers wouldn't have understood what they were saying. So if they see maybe Eleanor there, maybe a pat on the arm, lots of giggling, saying things they don't understand, they're thinking, well, I mean, it must be something to do with sex. So, <laughs> Yeah. All right. I tell you, we're going to lose this crusade at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what the cartoon would be in the next day's newspaper. <laughs> uh, in reality, the real fallout uh, between um, Eleanor Raymond and Louis is military and strategic rather than romantic. Mm. By the time they reached Antioch, Edessa, which had, was why they were re- all really out there, was basically permanently lost. So Louis is going to have to find something else to do with his army. And Raymond wanted to attack Aleppo because Antioch was caught between the Muslim, uh, Muslim and Byzantine expansion and taking Aleppo would help to strengthen his position. Eleanor seems to have agreed with him. She advocates the strategy, but Louis decides instead to rendezvous with the other Christian leaders in Jerusalem, which for Raymond is very much in the wrong direction, and then decide what to do. Mm. And this Mm. is why Eleanor refuses to go with Louis. She's angry at her husband not going along with their strategy at abandoning her uncle. So when they do eventually have the meeting at Jerusalem with the other leaders in the Crusades, Eleanor again advocates uh, for an attack on Aleppo and is supported in this by uh, Queen Melisende of Jerusalem uh, that we mentioned in the episode. But Louis and co. decide to attack Damascus and it all goes very, very badly. Why are the... um why are these wives involved in these meetings? Why are these women getting involved? No wonder they lost... But I thought it was odd that um, uh, that Eleanor was having an opinion, but actually other people were the Queen of Jerusalem. Was she queen and with no king? She was queen in her own right? Or? She was queen in her own right um, when she married her new husband, Fulk of Anjou, uh, so the father of Geoffrey of Anjou, who marries mm. Empress Matilda. Um, he then kind of takes over, but she's cross about that, basically sees him off. And then rules again in her own name, also sort of as regent for their son. But it is basically her ruling. Oh right, so that sh- so it's Eleanor meeting this other boss. Mm. Nice. So yes, in terms of somebody asking a question in the room, saying what, "What's she doing here?" It's like I'm literally ruler of Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? I've here? got. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. But how do they still get overruled by the gents then? Well, because they're all the different leaders um, of all the of the people who actually have the armies, basically, really. Mm. So they all decide to do something else, mm. and it goes badly. Right. 
and they go back and ask, well, well just out of interest, what was that plan you were talking about yesterday? <laughs> that The one about, no, not the one I did, the other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goes badly for Raymond as well, of course. He is uh, killed in battle and his uh, head sent off one way and his other limbs sent off in different directions. So, uh, Oh, gosh. Yeah. Mm. You forget that there's a consequence to this all. It's not just jolly japes. <laughs> Divorce. So after all the drama of the Crusades, Eleanor and Louis were set on the path towards divorce, though after an Eleanor's initial call for it in 1148, it took another four years before she actually got her wish. Partly mm. this was because Louis's advisers were against it. Uh, Thierry Galleral, the eunuch that Eleanor hated, uh, told Louis that to return to France, having lost the Crusade and his wife, would destroy his reputation. <laughs> uh, Abbot Suger had been a chief advisor to Louis VI, the previous king, and seems to have been similarly invested in the project to recreate a sort of greater France. And obviously, mm. annulment with Eleanor means you lose Aquitaine, which is a pretty huge amount of territory to give away. Yeah, it never happened in his lifetime. Mm. Uh, however, the most vehement obstacle was Pope Eugenius III, who, uh, according to John of Salisbury, was very much opposed to a separation. Mm. He reconciled the king and queen after hearing severally the accounts each gave of the estrangement begun at Antioch, and forbade any future mention of their consanguinity. Confirming their marriage, both orally and in writing, he commanded under pain of anathema that no word should be spoken against it, and that it should not be dissolved under any pretext whatever. <laughs> this ruling plainly delighted the king, for he loved the queen passionately, in an almost childish way. The pope made them sleep in the same bed, which he had decked with priceless hangings of his own and daily during their brief visit he strove by friendly converse to restore love between them. Oh, awful, awful man. <laughs> um, uh, then, after all of that, saying absolutely never, ever, 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 totally, and swear by God they are married, they do ultimately get divorced. They do, but not when they're with a the pope. Different, different Pope. Same Pope, but they're not living with him at the time. Not living with him, yeah. Now, the Pope's position here might seem a bit surprising because Eleanor and Louis were within the prohibited seven degrees uh, allowed yeah. in a marriage. Four degrees on Louis' side, five on Eleanor's. So they were third cousins once removed, which obviously isn't all that close now, but at the time, that those are the laws the Church have set. Yeah, And this was something the church had taken seriously, consanguinity being set at seven degrees in the 9th to 10th centuries, and great noble families did try to avoid uh, marriages of that closeness. Uh, in the 11th century, some marriages, even royal ones, were dissolved by the church against the wishes of the, uh, the principals. So this actually made wow. brides from uh, Rus very popular, as it was a good source of Christian noble women who didn't have any relationship to their prospective European husbands. Yeah, they need to spread the gene pool a bit. Mm, so it's sort of 11th century mail-order brides, effectively. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, the, so that's why we had the, the uh, Anna Yaroslavna that I mentioned from Kiev coming over to be queen and finding Think. how rubbish Paris was. Yes. Think of that, though. That's a thousand years ago. Mm. Best part of, you know, coming over here like it's a new thing. <laughs> 
However, ultimately, uh, the French monarchs came to see there was actually a dynastic benefit to consanguinity uh, because it was so hard to find suitable brides who weren't related within seven degrees. It basically meant that most of the marriages would technically be going against consanguinity. So it gives you a very reliable get-out clause in case the marriage doesn't produce children. Mm. So if you have a marriage, no sons, you say, ah, ah, consanguinity, got to... Got to get a new one. Yeah, but also then, if if any factions develop, it gives them a great claim of uh, illegitimacy on the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, if it if there's a if they do get rid of that person and do have a son, and the daughter from that previous marriage tries to take the crown, they can say, "Well, you were. It's not a legal marriage, mate." Yeah. Souls. It's not good, is it? I mean, all round, it's a bad idea. So from Philip I, who was uh, 1060 to 1108, to Philip Augustus II from 1180 to 1223, every French king divorced at least once. Wow. Mm. Just because of lack of sons, or they just were playboys? Both. Yeah, okay. Ultimately, therefore, the church started to emphasise the importance of the indissolubility... <laughs> Indissolubility. Indissolubility. In, that is tricky. Indissolubility of marriage yeah. rather than consanguinity. Basically, you shouldn't divorce, is what they're saying. So, for Pope yeah. Eugenius, the thought that the King of Queen of France are going to get divorced, particularly after returning from a failed crusade that he would have helped to encourage, that's far mm. worse than the fact that their third cousin's once removed. Right, okay. So, as a result, Eleanor has to wait until 1152 when they're no longer living with the Pope. Abbot Suga is dead, and the nobles are a bit worried that there still isn't a male heir. Mm. And then it, on balance, it starts to be more important to have an heir than... Yeah. Okay. Uh, Louis agrees to a separation, which is all decided upon at the Council of, Bou- of uh, Beaugency. Uh, apparently, the Bishop of Long suggested that the Council should investigate rumours of Eleanor's adultery. Oh, God, that was backup plan, surely. Mm, but the Archbishop of Bordeaux blocked this and proposed instead that they just focus on consanguinity, which was rather easier and less controversial. Yeah, everyone wants out. What, why make it nasty? Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it was a political rather than religious separation. Indeed, Eleanor and Henry II were related in the same degree as Eleanor and Louis VII. Oh, right. So her new husband is exactly the same relationship as uh, the old one that she had to divorce because of consanguinity. <laughs> I'll see, yeah. <laughs> oh, stupid. But even worse, Louis's relationship with his second wife was actually even closer than it was with Eleanor. No! Yeah. Oh, God, no, goodness sake. Uh, unsurprisingly, by 1215, uh, the papacy accepted reality and at the Fourth Lateran Council, they reduced the threshold to four degrees rather than seven. Mm, they should have really gone the other way, if anything. Because mm. <laughs> where do you stop? Yeah. Now, interestingly, Eleanor was not the ob- Eleanor. Interestingly, Eleanor was not the only noblewoman in this period to secure her own separation. Uh, Constance of Brittany had a turbulent relationship with her second husband, which saw her being confined for a year. But she emerged to successfully secure an annulment and take a third husband. Uh, Matilda. 
Matilda, Matilda de Mandeville was the Countess of Essex in her own right. And in 1223, she secured uh, annulment from her husband, having started the proceedings previous year, uh, although unfortunately a papal review overturned this in 1235. Whether these examples show that Eleanor's behaviour isn't actually all that unsurprising, or maybe she sets a mould for others to follow, is a Mm. moot point, but she's not the only one that does it. Mm. Okay. Marrying Henry! So after Louis came Henry, though only thanks to Eleanor evading some would-be abductors. Oh, yeah. Now, this is something that exercised your mind in a first episode, the fact that a nobleman could secure himself a prestigious marriage just by kidnapping an heiress. Yeah, it's been going over and over my mind quite a lot recently. (laughs) Um, Not because I'm hatching some dastardly (laughs) plan, Um, but because it also came up in that drama... Mm. And it's just so peculiar. Mm. It is odd. Yeah, what have you got for me? Well, so the first chap to try his hand at abduction was Theobald of Blois. Not Stephen's brother now, who is dead, but his son and heir. Uh, And they'd probably be related as well, I guess. Uh, He attempts to seize Eleanor as she journeys south, so she was forced to travel to Tours by water. Then the second ne'er do well was plotting an ambush at the port to Peel, Peel at the port to Peel, where Eleanor would have crossed the river Cruce. Uh, but thankfully, Eleanor receives warning of the ambush and makes it to Poitiers by uh, travelling along the back roads. Now, intriguingly, it's possible that the tip-off might have come from Henry II himself, hmm. because the person trying to abduct her was his younger brother Geoffrey. No. Yeah. Wow. This family. They're all just players of the same game, aren't they? They, it's, they don't, clearly don't live under the same roof. Mm. But Henry perhaps gets wind of it, and maybe he's already got a sense that he and Eleanor might, uh, might do something. So he sends her a warning, and then once she gets to Poitiers, she gives him the bell. Mm, mm. Yeah, it sounds pre-arranged, I think, and he's got scouts about. But this may explain why Eleanor remarries so quickly, because it's less than two months since she received the annulment from Louis, which sounds a bit racy in terms of marrying Henry, but when you consider that in those two months she's twice had to escape abductors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, true. She probably feels like she does have to marry. Mm. Um, And it's not that unusual for countesses to remarry quite quickly. Um, Lucy, the Countess of Chester, married Ranulf of Chester within a month of the death of her first husband, and then within a year of Ranulf's death. Uh, Isabelle de Vermandois, who was a Countess of Melwan and Leicester, reputedly married her second husband, while her first was actually on his deathbed. <laughs> Gotta be sure. So we just hurry along with China. We probably... Uh, two for one offer. Wedding and funeral. <laughs> yeah. Uh, During the anarchy, many widowed countesses remarried within six months, and the younger and wealthier they were, the quicker they would remarry. And indeed, if Mm. Eleanor hadn't been the mother of the king, she might have been forced to remarry in 1189, even though she was 65, or at the very least pay a fine to be allowed to remain single. Fine to who? To the king. Her son? Well, yes, that's why she doesn't have to do it, obviously, but other women would have done. Richard seems to have been pretty hot on forcing titled widows to marry. Apparently 66% of them do remarry during his reign. And he, he played he, he, quite a sight. 
from having a kingdom to run, he's also running Noble Tinder Network. Yeah. <laughs> he's deciding who who they marry. Yeah, I guess because, you know, I, I suppose the, the sort of powerful people, the sort of these big territories that they're ruling, and from his perspective, he's like, right, I need somebody to go in there and to rule. So you marry. I don't want it just to be in your hands. Get you married. Get this person all the land and the castles, and then I'm set. Okay, so it's it's just another bit of admin. Mm. I see. Or it's a bit of money if they say, no, I'm definitely not going to marry. He says, well, you're going to have to pay me then. Oh, yeah, win-win. Well done, that man. <laughs> Queen of England! Perhaps one of the most surprising thing about Eleanor is that until the Great Revolt, her time as Queen Consort of England was pretty unremarkable, indeed rather less impressive than the Norman Matildas that came before her. Because it mainly what she does in terms of what's impressive in England is as Queen Mother. Yes. Rather than yes. Queen Consort. Let's not to say oh, she doesn't see, yeah, have yeah. any kind of influence in England. She seems to have acted as regent on a few occasions. Uh, John of Salisbury complained that he was forced to seek her permission to leave the country when he wanted to leave the country. Uh, <laughs> she interceded in legal disputes, sent out writs, took action to right wrongs that were brought to uh, her attention. But she's not given huge power. Mm. in the mm. way that Matilda of Scotland, Matilda of Flanders, Matilda of Boulogne had been kind of right-hand man, as it were. Yeah, she's not got the army, has she? No. Mm. Um, but there are some examples of stuff that she gets involved with. One uh, which shows that she could be a loyal regent for Henry before the revolt is the case of Mary of Boulogne, uh, who's the daughter of Matilda of Boulogne, and she becomes the Countess of Boulogne in her own right, while abbess at Romsey. Uh, now, Henry fears a French takeover of Boulogne, so he thinks, well, I can't just leave the uh, the Countess to be a nun, so instead mm. thinks I'm going to have to marry her. So he finds uh, his cousin and ally, Matthew of Flanders, and says, right, you're going to go get her out, marry her. But Mary wanted to stay in the religious life, so despite the outrage of the church, Matthew of Flanders forcibly removes her from the abbey and marries her. Wow. This is effectively state-sanctioned abduction. Again. Yeah, that's the king pitting his power against the Pope's mm. a bit. Not for the uh, for last time with Henry II. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I can't believe I've forgotten Beckett, <laughs> which we said at the time was the biggest scandal, you know, and it's we're still talking about it now. Mm. There's just so much going on here. Now, Eleanor is actually regent in England at this time, because Henry isn't there, so she would have had to have accepted Matthew's credentials before he could go on to Ramsey. Oh, uh, Romsey. Mm -hmm. So whether or mm -hmm. not she personally improved, which seems unlikely given her own experience of evading forced marriage, she obviously went along with Henry's plan and was trusted not to disrupt it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, maybe she just knew the rules as they were mm. and played them brutal <laughs> yeah now in 1168 Eleanor leaves England to go and rule Aquitaine at which point she encounters Rex Factor podcast favourite William the Marshal Marshall oh my goodness and it's even got him it's even got him uh, her forces are ambushed and her commander his uncle uh, is killed and William fights an heroic rearguard action fighting ferociously until he was lanced in the thigh and taken prisoner mm. Now, as a young and not terribly well-connected knight, William's prospects weren't particularly good, 
but his official history recalls how he was rescued by Eleanor. Because she saw all of his antics or heard or about them? Would have heard about them, I think. The Queen gave hostages when she could for the Marshal, who had suffered torment and pain in the cruel prison. When the Marshal was freed from prison and handed over to the Queen, he was very happy, for no one since the time of Abel escaped from such cruel hands. It seemed to him that he was very well off, for Queen Eleanor equipped him with what was fitting for such a man. No matter who might object, she gave him horses and arms and money and plenty of fine robes, for she was very worthy and courteous. Nice. Nice. I think a bit of hyperbole on the um, old, definitely the worst prison that there ever was front. Yes, since April. Are we to assume it's like noble imprisonment, where they still have wine and things? I think they weren't terribly, because he'd got wounds, and according to the history, they don't treat them, and he's sort of forced to... There's sort of a young Mm. maiden within the castle that takes pity on him and... smuggles bandages in for him and all that sort of stuff right right uh but once well, yeah, that was that book i oh, sorry that book i read about him audio book do you remember oh elizabeth chadwick yeah that's it leopard something mm. Mm. <laughs> rubbish <laughs> Uh, now, once recovered from his wounds, William's given a place in uh, Eleanor's retinue. He may have—he uh, probably stays in Aquitaine for a bit to help resolve. He probably stayed in Aquitaine to help impose Angevin authority against the Lucinians and people like that. And he, he may even have been an early military tutor for Richard the Lionheart, who was with Eleanor at this uh, point. Yeah. Uh, not for long, though, because in te- uh, not for long, though, because in 1170 he joins the retinue of the young Henry, probably on Eleanor's recommendation for her eldest son. Uh, but he obviously makes a big impression on William because his history provides an unequivocally positive portrayal of her, which, as mm. we saw in Eleanor's uh, review episode, is by no means universal. Given. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Eleanor continued to have uh, some influence outside of Aquitaine even after 1168. When Henry took the controversial decision to have the young Henry crowned as co-king, despite the fact that mm. Beckett as the Archbishop of Canterbury was in exile and thus couldn't do the ceremony, uh, the decision was said to have been made by the Council of the Queen and all her entourage, for such was her duty. Mm. So Henry's apparently nice. still consulting her. Uh, Ellen doesn't attend the coronation, but she acts as regent in Normandy in Henry's absence and apparently closed the ports to prevent Becket's supporters and messengers travelling to England to try and stop the ceremony. All right. Okay, so still seeing, uh, going on the same uh, side there. Yeah, and she may also have been with Henry at the Christmas court that year when Henry utters his uh, infamous, albeit disputed, words that lead to Beckett's death. Mm. Though whether or not she actually witnessed the outburst, we'll never quite know. Oh, cool. Cultural patronage. This is my favourite, Graham. Well, yeah, and it's another surprising area where she didn't do as much as people think. The more positive legends of Eleanor have her as a great patron spreading the troubadour culture across Europe, overseeing a sort of flowering chivalric court. But in reality, evidence for her patronage is pretty limited. Mm. Uh, The chap uh, Thaon, whose book Bestiary featured a dedication to her in which she is described as the arbiter of honour, wit and beauty. But in reality, this is actually only a second edition, and the original one was dedicated to another Queen of England, Adelita of Levan. 
<laughs> Just cross the name out. Yeah, basically. Oh, nice. Uh, Saint-Mars Roman de Troyes refers to the rich lady of a rich king, without evil, without sorrow, without anger, in whom all knowledge abounds. Uh, which is almost certainly referring to Eleanor, but again, he's probably trying to secure future patronage uh, rather than actually her being the one who's commissioned the work. Right. Okay. Uh, but where she does have significance is as an inspiration for literature. So the Roman de Troyes is the first version of the legend of Troilus and Cressida, mm. which Chaucer and Shakespeare famously. Oh, yeah famously done uh, this is a telling of the trojan war but with new romantic heroes at its center so cressida or brisida as she's known in this original version uh, is a woman who's criticized for betraying her lineage by marrying a greek uh, leading to a diatribe against faithless women who change their loves so easily oh oh indeed now this so-called uh, betrayal is redolent uh, in terms of the trojan war of helen of troy who, of course, mm. was married to the Greek Menelaus, but then abducted by and marrying the Trojan Paris. But also, there's a little hint of uh, a certain Eleanor of Aquitaine there. Mm-hmm. She More than a little. D- uh, ditches Lewin and goes to Henry. Now, the thing is here, as queen, Helen of Troy would, have be, the, would be the obvious parallel for Eleanor. Mm. Not least because their names actually aren't all that different in terms of that kind of analogy. Ellen, mm. Helen, etc. Yeah, uh, But the thing is that Saint-Marc doesn't want to focus on Helen of Troy as the example of faithless women because of the Eleanor connection. He wants to appeal to Eleanor and get her patronage and she's the queen at court. So what he has to do is invent a new character, i.e. Cressida, so that he could have a diatribe against faithless women. But it's absolutely fine. It's not Eleanor because Eleanor would obviously be Helen of Troy and we're not doing a diatribe against Helen uh, of Troy. Wow, right. So just take take uh, the uh, similarly one st- one name removed. It's Cressida, Helen, Eleanor. Yeah. But that's your beard. Right, I see. Now, this is also a period that sees a growth in Arthurian literature. And Eleanor is most likely an inspiration for contemporary versions of Guinevere. Oh, right. And this is another way where we can see things changing. So uh, Wace's Roman de Brew. Uh, likely models Camelot on Henry and Eleanor's court because Henry was his patron and he presents the final version of his work to Eleanor. Mm. Uh, This is written in 1255, which is quite early in their marriage, and it provides a very positive model. So it's focused on romance, chivalry, and chaste love. Nice. In in contrast, Lorman's Brew, which is written sometime sort of 1190 to 1215, and is in fact the first presentation of Arthurian legend in the English language. Hmm. Right. This presents Guinevere as a manipulative seductress who destroys uh, Camelot uh, through her shenanigans and ultimately deserves punishment. Right. And it's quite so, interesting. Uh, it might not be entirely because of Eleanor, but we see early Guinevere, or Guinevere yeah. in early Eleanor, very positive paragon of chivalry. Late yeah. Eleanor, late Guinevere, betrayer, seductress, all this sort of stuff. When she's in prison. When she's in prison or has been in prison, when she switched marriages, all that kind of thing. So perhaps yeah. the way that Guinevere is portrayed shifts depending upon contemporary views of Eleanor. Interesting. Mm. Rex fact. Mm. 
Now, perhaps the most famous cultural association with Eleanor are the Courts of Love. Mm. Uh, supposedly, these are held at Poitiers from 1168 to 73 when she's over in Aquitaine. Uh, and it's said that Eleanor headed... Oh, I got you. It said that Eleanor headed. <laughs> she did. <laughs> uh, where Eleanor headed an all-female jury which heard cases from noblemen presenting romantic dilemmas on which the women would give judgment. It's like a comedy thing, something to pass the time. Some, or something was to pass something the time, or indeed up? an actual thing they were doing. Right. Well, so she made up a power. I'm going to be the judge on love. Mm. So this is where Eleanor merges the traditions of troubadours, chivalry and courtly love into one cohesive entity. Uh, now, this legend had been accepted as truth for a long time, but actually the only source for it comes from a chap called uh, Andreas Capellanus, or Andrew the Chaplain, who was uh, writing at the French court of Philip Augustus in the 1180s. Now, instead of this being a sort of a dry chronicle, he's actually probably doing a bit of satire. Because right. Ellen is very much a ripe target for an anti-Angevin audience. And we've got various ironies, such as the fact that Eleanor rules on consanguineous marriage and she promotes the merits of marrying an older, wiser man rather than a virile, younger man. Right, yeah, I see. So actually, almost certainly, courts of love never actually happened. But lots of people... Well, no, I don't see. Why, why, why did that say that? So then, why did it never actually happen? Because it's just uh, a bit of satire at the French court. Doesn't yeah, that's what Eleanor. I thought it was, though. But it actually happened that they were just doing a satire. Like, did they actually conduct this thing? Or Well, no, that's the thing. But historians for a long time have just written about the course of love as factual things that definitely happened. Oh, okay. But actually, yeah, it all sorry, just comes you. from this one chap who's probably just satirising Eleanor and her ladies. Mm. Okay. But people really try to cling to it, so they say, oh, well, maybe it didn't quite happen like this, but maybe it's a parlour game, or maybe it's this sort of thing, but it's still mm. the fact that it's only this one guy probably taking the mick yeah. that recalls it Oh, all. that's a shame. It just needs one more bit of evidence. Resource, rather. Mm. But that's the whole thing with Eleanor, that there's this tradition of her doing all this chivalric stuff, the troubadour stuff, courts of love. That's a lot of her sort of positive golden reputation, but actually, like a lot of the scandalous legends it is just legend mm. shame shame the great revolt and the most controversial part of Eleanor's time as queen of england was her involvement in the great revolt against henry in 1173 mm. uh, we talked about this in the episode there's a bit more that could be said about her motivation uh, for this we said how henry wasn't giving her as much power as she wanted uh, in Aquitaine, but further to that, Henry seemed to be undermining Aquitaine's uh, independence. So in 1168, he gave Gascony as dowry for their daughter Eleanor, who was heading off to Castile, which is about a fifth of uh, south of Aquitaine. Mm. In the Treaty of Limoges in 1173, which is where the young Henry ended up storming off and kickstarting the rebellion, Henry receives homage from the Count uh, Raymond of Toulouse, which both abandons Eleanor's claims to Toulouse, because he's effectively saying, all right, it's yours, not hers. Okay. Yeah. But probably more importantly, he receives homage from Raymond for Aquitaine, as well as the other territories. 
So this is homage that should have been paid to Eleanor or maybe just to Richard in her stead, but instead Henry is receiving it, which is suggesting that he's starting to treat Aquitaine as just a sort of a vassal territory that's being completely subsumed within his wider empire, whereas from Eleanor's perspective, Aquitaine is retaining its separate status. I see. Okay, so it's as important as England. It's not the English Empire. Mm. It's two areas. It's a conglomeration of various territories, and she always sees Aquitaine as being a separate thing that will continue off in its own direction under Richard once Henry has died. Right. But things like this make her think, oh, maybe Henry's never actually going to let it go. He's always going to keep it Mm. to himself. And actually, if there's a chance to take action against him, then maybe it's a good time. Okay, because she's thinking of all of her sons, and he's just thinking of his position. Yeah. Indeed, this inability to delegate and the impact it has on his family members, because he upsets all of them quite a lot (laughs) during the next, Mm. uh, well, 15 years or so, um, seems to be something of a blind spot for Henry. The rebellion seems to take him completely by surprise to the extent that not only was he okay for Eleanor to remain in possession of their two of their other sons, but she also basically had all the great women of the Angevin Empire in her court at the time. So Alice, who is betrothed to Richard, Constance of Brittany, who's the fiancée of Geoffrey, Alice of Maurienne, who is the prospective bride for John, as well as Emma of Anjou, Henry's illegitimate sister, and Joan, their youngest daughter. All of these women uh, are with Eleanor at the time that the rebellion Why is that? Why off. has she got all these women with her? Well, I guess she, she's the matriarch, isn't she? But is, was that seen as significant, that, that she had a load of... It's significant in terms of the extent to which Henry obviously trusts her at this point. Because if he thinks, oh, I'm not sure what Eleanor's doing, I think she might be up to something, then he wouldn't be happy that she's got all of the most important women and two of their sons in her possession. So the fact that he's okay with this and doesn't do anything about it at first suggests that he has no idea that Eleanor is going to take any action against him. Okay, because that would have been the perfect place to ferment something. Yeah, and if you're trying to secure all of your possessions and all this sort of stuff, you don't want... Uh, a potential mm. rebel to be in possession of your sons, your sons' wives, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Once Henry does realise that Eleanor is at the very least not entirely supporting him uh, on this matter, he had the Archbishop of Rouen send her a rather threatening letter. We got some uh, an extract from that. Nice. We all deplore with common and lamentable complaint that though you are a most prudent woman, you turn away from your husband... Side recedes from side. The member does not serve the head. I'm sure he's I'm talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> and what is far worse, you suffer the flesh of your Lord King and yourself to rise against their father. For we know that unless you return to your husband, you will be the cause of general ruin. Return, therefore, illustrious queen, to your husband and our lord, so that by your reconciliation rest may be restored to those who labour, and by your return happiness may return to all. Truly this desolation cannot fall on the lord king, but on his sons and their successors. You provoke the displeasure of the lord king, a king to whom even the strongest kings bend their necks. 
before the situation gets worse, return with your sons to your husband, whom you are bound to obey and live with. Admonish your sons, I beg you, to be subject and devoted to their father, who has suffered such anguish, so many crimes and travails from them. So is it these um, priests' jobs just to send lecture letters? Yes, and it's probably entirely at Henry's bidding that Mm. this letter is sent. So he's saying, look, we need to sort her out. Here's what you're going to say. Write this down. Yeah. Right. Put your name on this. Yeah. Uh, Now, although being uh, Queen of England and being imprisoned for 15 years is quite a remarkable situation, noble ladies in this period do often find themselves being imprisoned by their husbands. So in some ways, it's not so unusual. Uh, well, captured of, in the first place. Well, indeed, yeah, the initial abduction. Uh, Constance of Brittany was imprisoned by her second husband, uh, Ranulf of Chester, though largely on the orders of Richard the Lionheart, because she took mm. uh, overly independent action that he didn't approve of. Uh, Countess Agnes of Oxford was the third wife of Aubrey de Vere, the first Earl of Oxford, and she was locked up in one of his castles when he was trying to divorce her. So she has to appeal to the Pope, and the Bishop of London eventually orders Aubrey to release her while the Pope heard the case. And uh, Countess Isabel of Gloucester and Mortain was divorced by John when he became king and was then shut away so that no one else could claim her independence. And she's only released in 1214, so 15 years later, when Geoffrey de Mondeville, the Earl of Essex, agreed to pay John £20,000 in order to marry her. Goodness me, he just put her in the attic and thought that might be worth something later. Yeah. I don't wow. want it, but I'm not going to let anyone else have it. Um, what? Did he remarry? Well, that's why he, uh, oh, that's why why he put right. her in the attic. Oh, it's terrible. What mm. a nasty man. Mm. Bad King John. It's bad. John, you're being very bad. <laughs> you're Johnning again. <laughs> Richard the Lionheart Now Eleanor was finally released in 1189 when Henry died by uh, Richard and as we've been saying it's as Queen Mother that she really got to show off her power and her greatness her only account of her release comes from William Marshall Oh yeah. Uh, he'd been loyal to Henry II right to the end but he was then immediately brought into Richard's close circle and Richard sends William back to England where he is to release Eleanor deliver a secret message and he's then able to take up a new and prestigious bride and this is the account of their meeting according to William's official history the marshal did everything in England that he had sought to do concerning the king as the source relates and he found Queen Eleanor whose name was composed of Ali and Orr, at liberty in Winchester, happier than she was accustomed to be. When he had delivered all the messages in a wise and prudent fashion, he went to find the damsel of Strigoil, who was good and beautiful. Oh, and that was his new wife? Yeah. (laughs) Once done my work, I will get get myself a wife well yeah because remember from his episode he's like 40 or so at this point and hasn't married so he seems like he's mm. quite keen to <laughs> mm. get started uh, frustratingly it doesn't tell us what this secret message actually was <laughs> or any details of their conversation but it's obviously considered significant enough to mention and indeed Eleanor's one of the only women to be mentioned by name in William's history book which includes his wife the damsel of Stragoyle 
with whom he has ten children. Wow. Hmm. Wow. But there are clear... I mean, there are powerful women out there. It's a conscious decision he's made. Hmm. But obviously Eleanor is considered uh, important and uh, positive enough that the author feels the need to uh, tell us her name and indeed to spell her name. (laughs) Yeah, 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 true. Uh, Once released, Eleanor proved a vital part of Richard's government and really kept the ship afloat during all of his various absences and difficulties. And uh, it's nice to find that Richard recognises and appreciates this. So uh, when he was imprisoned, he wrote to Eleanor asking for help in securing his choice for the new Archbishop of Canterbury. But his Mm. letter opens with uh, a tone of uh, heartfelt gratitude and affection. To his revered lady and dearest mother Eleanor, by that same grace, Queen of England, greeting and all the happiness that a devoted son can desire for his mother. First to God, and then to your serenity, sweetest mother, we give thanks as we can, though we cannot suffice to actions so worthy of thanks for your loyalty to us, and the faithful care and diligence you give to our lands for peace and defence so devotedly and effectively. Indeed, we also know that through the mercy of God and your counsel and help, the defence of our lands is and will be in great part provided. For your prudence and discretion is the greatest cause of our land remaining in a peaceful state until our arrival. Oh, goodness me. It's heavy going, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, it's it's nice for what you don't necessarily associate the sort of medieval warrior kings with an element of humility and acknowledging that other people might be in some ways contributing to your own success. And he's saying <laughs> yeah. that I am aware that the only reason that I have a kingdom to come back to is basically you. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good of him. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> yeah. Box of roses. Paper letters. Now, the biggest challenge Eleanor had to face under Richard was when he was captured on his way back from the Crusades. And one of the most traditionally celebrated parts of her diplomatic efforts are two letters that uh, she sent to Pope Celestine III in 1193. Mm-hmm. And these are really pretty remarkable letters. They see Eleanor berate the Pope for failing to take sufficient action and uh, in condemning Richard captives or indeed to secure the release. Is this the same Pope that gave her the... Um Love lessons. No, different Pope. Different Pope. Uh, The first letter is full of anger, sort of famously opening. To the Reverend Father and Lord Celestine, by the grace of God, Supreme Pontiff, Eleanor, by the wrath of God, Queen of England. What does she mean by that? Um, I'm... Is that how she signed it, you mean? Yeah, that's how she opens the letter. So, So, to you, grace of God... Supreme Pontiff, from Eleanor, by the wrath of God, Queen of England. It's quite a (laughs) a cool cool. and threatening tone. Mm. Uh, She reminds Celestine of how during the schism, where there were rival popes, Henry II had supported the true pope, while Louis and France had dithered and the emperor supported the rival. She accused Celestine of bringing the papacy into disrepute for his lack of action. Into disrepute for his lack of action. Then the second letter plays up then the second letter, in contrast, plays up her age and maternal grief. So she uh, laments, Why have I, the lady of two kingdoms, reached this disgrace of abominable old age? My insides have been torn out of me. My family has been carried off. It has rolled past me. The young king and the Earl of Brittany sleep in the dust. 
Their mother is so ill-fated she is forced to live, so that without cure she is tortured with the memory of the dead. Oh dear. But the anger soon returns. She accuses the Pope of playing politics, fearing to offend the Holy Roman Emperor, when he should be upholding his spiritual duties. Is your power derived from God or from men? Why then have you, so negligent, so cruel, done nothing for so long about the release of my son? Or is it rather that you do not dare? It is in your power to release my son, unless the fear of God yields to a human fear. Alas, it is a sorry time when the chief shepherd turns into a mercenary, when he flies from the face of the wolf, when he abandons in the jaws of a bloodthirsty beast a lamb put in his care. Did it work? Well, the question is, why did I not include these rather cool letters in her review Mm. episode? Uh, Two reasons for this. Firstly, historians now believe the letters aren't actually written by Eleanor, but instead a chap called Peter of Bois. Uh, He is a highly educated man who claimed that he could dictate three letters simultaneously while writing a fourth by hand. Uh, He became something of an Angevin speechwriter, and these letters are very much in his style. More importantly, uh, it's doubtful if the letters were ever actually sent. Because they were found in Peter's files, but there's no record of them in the Vatican. And indeed, they probably would have made for pretty poor diplomacy, because insulting the Pope, whose support would have been so crucial in securing Richard's release, is probably not a very effective tactic. Yeah, it might be like those um, love judgment things. It's actually a satire. Hmm. Uh, and furthermore, Eleanor had actually enjoyed a very cordial relationship with Celestine III, which stretched back over 50 years. Oh, 50 years? Yeah. Gosh, you must have known him when he was just like a little monk sweeping the floor and stuff. Well, he's, he's like 80-odd when he becomes Pope. He didn't really want to, but no one else wanted him. <laughs> Good bucks. Um, but the letters make no reference to the fact that they actually know each other. Mm. Which, if Eleanor had written it or dictated it, presumably she might have dropped in a bit of a reference to this fact. Even if they are written by someone else, though, he um, was trying to presumably take her tone. That's possible. That is possible. But uh, they're probably intended to be part of his portfolio to show off the rhetorical flusheries that he's the rhetorical flourishes he's capable of, but never actually put to any practical use. Mm, right. King John. Of course, the hard work didn't finish with Richard. Despite retiring for five years, she's forced back into action to help John secure the succession. And then, having done lots and lots of good work, frustratingly, John set about undoing it. So uh, mm. he makes a controversial marriage to Isabella of Anguilem, who'd previously been betrothed to the leader of the Lucinians. Yeah, now, they were the rebellious people, right? They were the rebellious people, but they had initially supported him against Arthur. Indeed, probably thanks to some of Eleanor's uh, diplomatic oh, work. Right. But obviously, stealing the prospective bride of their leader is maybe not the best way to maintain their support. Mm. 1201, Eleanor sees that this might cause one or two diplomatic issues, so she sets about to try and protect John's position by securing the loyalty of uh, various vassals that might be about to switch. Uh, one such is a Poitavin noble, uh, Amory of Tours, and Eleanor writes to John, telling him what she's been up to. Yeah. 
I want to tell you, my very dear son, that I summoned our cousin Amory of Tours to visit me during my illness, and the pleasure of his visit did me good, for he alone of your Poitevin barons has wrought us no injury, nor seized unjustly any of your lands. I made him see how wrong and shameful it was for him to stand by and let other barons rend your heritage asunder, and he has promised to do everything he can to bring back to your obedience the lands and castles that some of his friends had seized. So, okay, yeah, get it back to how it was. Getting it all back. Uh, unfortunately, John doesn't follow his mother's diplomatic advice and manages to alienate many of his uh, allies, including... Amory of Tours, who was with him at John's great victory at Mirabeau, where he rescued Eleanor and captured Arthur of Brittany. Mm. But John then murdered Arthur of Brittany, as well as various other prisoners, and uh, lost quite a lot of support. Oh, yeah. There was... When was the Cade Rebellion in Norwich? Was that around this? That's uh, the... That's Wars of the Roses, isn't it? Oh, Oh, no, hang on. Or is that Henry? Or Edward, because one of those books I remember reading Isn't that on my in Lake? Yeah, and oh, so it's Henry the. Oh, well, no. I think it's Edward actually. I think it's Edward by that point. Is it dissolution? Yeah. Okay, so it's much later. But <laughs> I remember reading one of the, listening to one of those books on the boat, and it was about because um, he murdered him in a in a dungeon, right? Yeah. His thought. Mm. Fontevraud. So when Ella finally came to the end of her life, she chose to be buried at the Abbey of Fontevraud with her well, second husband and a favourite son. Uh, Fontevraud has been associated with Dukes of Aquitaine since the time of her grandparents. That's where her mother went off when her father was, her grandfather was up with the uh, Viscountess Dangerous. Uh, and it's also notable for accommodating both men and women. Mm. And it was governed by an abbess. So a bit similar to the double houses we talked about, the early Saxon. Christian oh, yeah, yeah. And indeed, apparently the governess was to be a widow, uh, the abbess was to be a widow rather than a virgin, so it was someone who had seen the world. Well, that sounds more healthy. Hmm. Uh, it also has strong Angevin connection, which made it an ideal house for Henry and Eleanor to focus their patronage on. Mm. It's situated on the borders between Anjou and Aquitaine, and from 1150 to 54, the abbess was Matilda of Anjou, who was the widow of William Adelan from the White Ship disaster. And oh, also yeah. Henry II's aunt. And so that's quite a tactical thing that it's on the border of the two that is... He was buried there, right? Mm. She wanted to be buried there. I think I said it in the episode, actually, that she'd got control even to the end. They put She'd put all the players to bed. Yeah. <laughs> and it was exactly as she'd planned in this abbey that could serve both of them. Mm. She was just trying to be fair. Yeah, and say so her main contribution were the effigies that she commissioned for Henry, Richard, and ultimately herself. So it might seem a bit surprising that Helena, uh, Helena, <laughs> Helenor of Troy. <laughs> it might seem surprising that Helena should create an effigy for Henry and really do anything at all for him after their troubles. But her family role does actually give her a moral responsibility to care for his soul, despite yeah. everything. Um, and, of course, their children. Now, the effigies for Henry and Richard are made by the same artist at the same time, so probably about 1,200. Eleanor's one is done a bit later by a different artist, but all three of them are painted tufo, tufo, so it's sort of chalky limestone from the Loire. What are they? Pe- so they're painted, though, so they look mm. like they've got rosy cheeks and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Eleanor's is the first me- uh, medieval sculptural representative of a laywoman holding a book, probably her own psalter. 
Um, hers is also a bit more robustly 3D than Henry and Richard. And perhaps most interestingly, she is shown posing in life, whereas Henry and Richard are shown in death. Oh, interesting. I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, but it's no, clear it's, conscious oh, choice. I bet it does have significance. Hmm. Also, unlike Henry and Richard, Eleanor's uh, effigy is very little by way of royal symbols, so she was obviously keen to project wisdom and intelligence rather than just sheer power and authority. Mm. Yeah, that's so her. Mm. Now, the effigies are something of a first in English royal history. There'd been nothing like them previously. Um, Geoffrey of Anjou had been given an enamel plaque, which does depict him but it's nowhere being life-size so there's a bit of a debate about where Eleanor gets the idea to commission something like this Hmm. Um, so possibly could have been inspired by her time in the Crusades Constantinople's Church of the Holy Apostles had massive sarcophagi and often included wives Jerusalem had a burial site developing for Crusader queens whilst the male rulers were venerated with monuments above their tombs But it's probably France where the tradition of royal effigies in the form of figures develops. The first fully-sized example of a contemporary was uh, her first mother-in-law, Adelaide of Morian. Um, And this is also similar to his style to a cenotaph for an earlier Merovingian queen, Fredegond, who died in 597 but was reinstalled in 1163. So it's possible that Eleanor's had a view of these, got wind of these, and thinks, oh, I quite like the idea of displaying the entire person for yeah. all to venerate okay. so it's a fashion that's mm. attaching on um, but one that perhaps she is quite uh, what's the word instrumental in creating mm. or fermenting we're actually lucky the effigies survive at all because in 1793 Fontevraud was sacked by revolutionaries the French Revolution uh, mm. and all religious life at Fontevraud ended it ceased to function as an abbey is it, st- is it going now? Well, it is still there now. Um, in 1804, Napoleon transformed it into a prison, and it remained as such until 1963. No. <laughs> uh, damage done to it meant that in 1816, when uh, someone came in, she was actually missing the book and her left hand. Oh, man. Because of some prisoners were there. Prisoners or perhaps the revolutionaries beforehand. But thankfully, drawings made before the revolution meant restorers were able to make some repairs. So it's not her original book or her original left hand. Oh, man. Or do we just... Oh, do we just make that up? Did she actually just have one hand <laughs> and couldn't read? I'm a monster. <laughs> um... So, so to assume then that during that time it didn't have any significance to the French, at least because it wasn't a French royal. It was a uh, well, because, you know, well no, because it was a royal. That was the thing with the revolution. Oh right, yeah, because she was Queen of France. Yeah, yeah, of mm. course. Um, wow, and so it really was a backwater when it was in a prison, say in 1960. That's <laughs> really modern history. Yeah. It would have been impossible for a British historian to get in and have a look at her because mm. it was a prison. Or well, I think they difficult. probably weren't even on display. So after 1963, the French Ministry of Culture decided to restore the Abbey as much as possible to its original condition. So they put back the effigies in all the places that they were meant to be and restored them. Right. Because there's bones underneath them, right? I, th- I think, I fear that the bones have been lost. 
what is it with what is with people in nicking bones i don't know why it's so important for me to, that they're there at all but mm, it's annoying mm. that happened a lot with obviously the dissolution in england and then the revolution in france yeah. that's where a lot of uh, old royal bones get lost what are they going to do with them just chuck them away show their displeasure yeah Dynasty. Surely we've done this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, what are the key things to getting a top score? Is scoring well in every category, which Eleanor, of course, managed. And indeed, in Dynasty, she had eleven children over the course of uh, twenty years, all by not mm. all by Henry, and not all surviving. Uh, it's an impressive number of children, but it's not so unusual. Again, the Countess uh, Countess Isabel of Pembroke, so William Marshall's wife. And mm. uh, Eleanor's own namesake daughter, the Queen of Castile, both had ten children, and both had five of each, so five boys and five girls. Uh, but the record uh, from this period was for Isabel de Vermandois, who had thirteen children by two husbands. Wow. Hang on, Eleanor of Castile? Not that Eleanor of Castile, wow. but an ancestor of her. Okay. So apparently of 47 Anglo-Norman and Angevin countesses in this period, the average number of children produced was 3.9. Not bad. It isn't bad. Especially if 50% of them are likely to be boys. Mm. And of course you've got to survive, well, the first one and the second one, Mm -hmm. so forth. And what's particularly impressive about Eleanor's dynasty is the illustrious nature of her descendants, with uh, her biographer Mm. Sarah Cockrell calling her less the grandmother of Europe and more the mother of empires. Yeah. So by Louis, she has Mary of France, whose descendants include the kings of Cyprus and Navarre, uh, and another daughter, Alice, whose descendants are the counts of St. Paul, and she is an ancestor of Jakarta of Luxembourg. Oh, and she is an ancestor of Jakarta of Luxembourg, who's the mother of Elizabeth Woodville. Gosh. Future yeah. Is it like Victoria? Hmm. Uh, by Henry, Matilda, the daughter Matilda, became the Duchess of Saxony and Bavaria, whose descendants include Catherine de Valois and uh, the Dukes of Brunswick, which is the Hanoverian line, ultimately. Oh, yeah. She's also the subject of a rather lascivious description by a troubadour called Bertrand de Bourne, who said of her, Her breast makes night seem like day, and if you could glimpse further down, the whole world would glow. Nice. Another daughter, Joan, becomes the Queen of Sicily, but it's uh, her daughter, Eleanor, whose line is the most remarkable. Eleanor becomes the Queen of Castile, uh, which is a line that leads to both Ferdinand and Isabella, Mm. uh, as well as the Portuguese monarchy, and it ultimately returns to England with another Eleanor of Castile. Who had excellent taste. Hmm. Uh, Most remarkable, though, is uh, her daughter, or Eleanor of Aquitaine's granddaughter, Blanche. So she's the one that Eleanor chooses to marry the French Dauphin when she had to go all the way across the Pyrenees, pick a granddaughter Mm. and head all the way back. Mm. Uh, Blanche acts as regent for her son Louis IX for eight years, remained a powerful figure in his majority, uh, including being regent again during an illness from 1244 to 45 and on his crusade from 1248 until her death in 1252. So Eleanor obviously picked pretty well when she thought which daughter had the uh had the qualities needed yeah i like it when you someone can uh tell the cut of someone's jib mm. and this line also returns to england in the uh, form of isabella of france uh charles isabella 
of France. <laughs> Who does she marry? Edward the Second. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. God, they must be very related. Well, as you can see, the fact that I've uh, all these various daughters, uh, quite a few of them are uh, ancestors of other English consorts. So the family mm. tree is very uh, mm. mingly. Of course, these are all just her daughters, because apart from John, none of Eleanor's sons have a lasting legacy in terms of oh, yeah. children. Geoffrey uh, is the only other son to have actually had legitimate children, a son and a daughter, uh, but mm. neither of them marry or hell or have children because obviously John murders and imprisons them. Oh, of course he does, yeah. That's terrible. John. He's being so bad, John. <laughs> Uh, Henry the Young King married uh, Princess Marguerite, who was the daughter of Louis VII by his second wife. Now, Thomas Beckett negotiated this marriage, and it's thought that Eleanor probably wouldn't have been desperately happy to see her no. eldest surviving son marrying the daughter of the man she divorced just six years earlier. Sort of like her stepdaughter. Yeah. But not f from an ex-husband. Mm. Oof. Uh, Louis obviously had his doubts as well because he stipulated the condition that Marguerite could not be placed in Eleanor's household. Right. Yeah. Because he knew that she wouldn't like him. Hmm. And also, presumably, they're both like, this is a bit weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's... More maybe the forging of a beautiful friendship. Maybe. Maybe. Unlikely. <laughs> uh, so that is it for all of my extra... Uh, Eleanor stuff. It didn't well, take quite as long as I thought it would, actually. But what a huge amount of stuff, given that there's not an amount, not a large amount of stuff. <laughs> exactly. It's very strange. I guess it's one of those where maybe every tiny reference that there is to Eleanor has been looked at and poured over and analysed and mm. looked at a second mm. time, whereas maybe others... People just think, oh, there's not much to say. I mean, there's this thing. Yeah, it's boring. Don't bother. I can sort of see where they're coming from because I've got a um, a note on my phone where I have a list of firsts that my kids do. Mm. Um, and someone asked me the other day what Rupert's first word was. And I went to look at my list. And I feel like with Eleanor... Or female lives, or important lives that aren't documented. It's like you said, people say, oh, we'll remember that. Let's just <laughs> tell them about this weird little bit that she uh, pardoned a cobbler or something, I don't know, <laughs> rather than her date of birth. Because looking back through that list of mine of my kids, mm. I haven't written down the things like first word, because I thought I'll always remember that. I've written <laughs> down things like saw first worm. <laughs> it's not at all useful. <laughs> yeah. Um, loads of stuff like that. Saw an ant. <laughs> I mean, they're not all about animals, but <laughs> my point is, people might have thought that Eleanor was as important as I think my children are. <laughs> you must have a difficult... The first time you ever went, went on a train with Rupert, you must have just been furiously <laughs> typing away. Uh, yeah, well, I can tell you when he first went on a train. Where's my phone? Don't know. Ah, oh, here it is. First saw an ant before he first saw a worm. Mm. 20th of the 3rd, 2017. <laughs> which was also 
the first day we had to shower him due to a poo explosion. Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> Rex Flicks. So that's everything for Eleanor in the Privy Chamber, but we do still have one more episode of Eleanor to bring to our Privy Councillors in the form of Rex Flicks. Uh, yes, so looking forward to it. Yeah, we've only done one of these so far, obviously, when we reviewed The King. Uh, but our next one is going to be, at long last, The Lion in Winter. Uh, now, it's not freely available in the UK, unfortunately, so it's a case of buying or renting it from Prime Video or somewhere else, if you can find it. Mm. Uh, Ali and I are going to be watching it on Tuesday the 24th of November and then reviewing it on Monday the 30th of November. So if you've seen it or want to see it before the episode, then that's your timescale for doing so. And if you want to let us know what you think about it, then uh, please do send in your reviews and we may uh, read some of your comments out on the podcast. Excellent. What are you thinking in advance of this? And you've not seen it yet, obviously. This is the last time that we're going to speak before you watch is The it? Lion in Winter. Oh, shame. Um, I'm looking forward to it. It's like I said before, it's, an, it's my first night out for <laughs> eight months, whatever, by watching a film and texting at the same time. It's really rather nice. How do you think you're going to get on with sort of older style film? Oh, where it's just endless dialogue on a flimsy set. Um, yeah, I'm going to love it. <laughs> um, I did say to my partner, I said, uh, um, we've got to watch... The, what what film is it? Is it the Lion in the Ward... Um, <laughs> the, the Lion in Winter. And uh, she said, right, when was it from? I said, about 1960. She went, forget it. <laughs> so it'll just be you and me. I was going to say, is she actually going to watch it? Because I mean, you mentioned. I think she will. <laughs> I think she will Do you yeah. remember who's in it? Um, because we've texted very, very recently, I do. Um, <laughs> Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Um, Audrey Hepburn? Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. Um, and James Bond. Yes. Timothy Dalton. <laughs> do you know how I remember? How do you remember? Your gif. Graham sent me a gif of uh, <laughs> Timothy Dalton, which made me giggle. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah, that'll be interesting. So, we'll be, uh, Ali and I will watch it. We will then the next week do a podcast reviewing it in the same way we did with The King. So, we'll do overview of what happens. Uh, assess how accurate it was historically in terms of the events uh, and the characters and then uh, whether we actually enjoyed watching it or not um we're gonna facebook and twitter throughout presumably yes but we can't do a uh, thing like we did last time we did a netflix party uh no it's a it's on prime which doesn't have that for uk people and also you have to buy it anyway so it's not a not great mm. um uh but, I mean, we could, we'll be texting each other. I might throw out a few Facebook Lives. You know. I'm going to be telling you everything that's happening. Mm. Who's this fellow? That's the trouble. All those actors look the same as well. Mm. Is that past uh, racist towards <laughs> one's own race? They're all like... They're all old white men pretending to be 30-year-olds. 
Well, in this case, these are actually people like Timothy Dalton. These are very young white men. Oh, I was thinking about Beardy Old Tool. Old Tool. <laughs> old Tool. Beardy Old Tool. <laughs> is he he's meant to be is he playing his age? I thought he was playing a young fellow. Well we'll we'll uh, maybe discuss oh. that when we do uh, when we do Rex Flicks. Okay. <laughs> um when are we gonna watch Jurassic Park? <laughs> uh maybe maybe next one. Okay. That was my uh uh, Joe's uh, birthday cake because I went to Oh Tesco. yeah, how was it? Yeah, no, he was really excited about it. So we um, went to Tesco and I said, oh, we need to get a cake. And obviously I approached at the wrong end of cakes because there are sort of more <laughs> normal sober birthday cakes and then yeah. there are the ones for eight-year-old boys. Yeah. So obviously he found just a uh, Jurassic Park birthday cake with a big T-Rex on it. Yeah, and nice. Just, this one, this one. And I was like, well, I don't know. It's, do you think mummy would like that one? Maybe we could get another one. He's like, maybe this one, which is just <laughs> yeah. another one of the T-Rex. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe I'm totally with one. toddlers on that. Oh, did cakes do go from screaming, yay, I'm eight, to you're 38. <laughs> you know, in, it just in their approach, rather than being a celebration of blooming dinosaurs, because hell, who doesn't love a dinosaur? Mm. It's just white. Yeah, it's... You couldn't be bothered to do this yourself. Here's a <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here's a blank canvas for, pff, I don't know, any toppings you can be bothered with. Yeah. I didn't have a cake. Mm. Yes, I did. <laughs> Had a little chocolate cake. Was it, was it, was my birthday in lockdown, 27th of October? Were we locked down by then? Oh, uh, well, we weren't in lockdown, lockdown, but obviously it's, Never been free, is it? Had we gone into the tier? Oh, we'd gone into tier three, tier whatever it is. Yeah. That was it. Near lockdown. Oh, reality (laughs) comes back to bite. It does. We just had a couple of nice hours lost in the 11th century. Was it 11th? 12th. 12th. Um, There we are back in the blooming 21st. (laughs) <laughs> where's that happy note to uh, to end on cheerio see you next time bye This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.